Hello and welcome to episode 21 of A Flatpack History of Sweden, wrapping up the Viking Age as we end this long period of history that we've been examining over the last few episodes. Yes, we've spent the last 10 episodes talking about the Viking Age and in particular Sweden during the Viking Age and we could easily have spent another 10 or another 100 or an entire podcast talking about this. Well, and we also even sort of briefly touched on the Viking period in episode 9 of Mind the Gap. So maybe even more than 10 episodes, especially if you count this one as well. So yeah, we've focused a lot of our time on the Vikings. But that's because there are very interesting events that happen in Swedish history and in European history in this point. But luckily, these continue as there's some very interesting events in Swedish history that lie just ahead of us in the chronology. So we're really looking forward to beginning to talk about these and look about real people that actually existed. Some of the kings that we're going to be starting off after this episode, they were real people and they existed and left their tangible mark on history enough that we can talk about them for entire episodes just about them. So it's going to be really exciting to talk about these people when we've only really had people like Ansgar and various Byzantine emperors who met with some more less detailed figures from history like Olga that we've had a chance to look at previously. Definitely. In fact, it's really now that we'll see Sweden forming as a proper unified country within something that vaguely resembles the borders of today. But before we get on with that, we thought it would be good to spend an episode concluding the Viking Age. Because we talked about a lot of different stuff during these past episodes. Whilst we obviously don't give preferential treatment to any period of history, the Viking Age is important in Sweden. Not least because it's when we start to see Sweden and Scandinavia being noticed outside of their own land, outside of their own region. This is no longer just some dark backwater of Europe. This is now an area to be known and reckoned with. It's also something that's become so well known in the rest of the world and something that Sweden and Scandinavia continues to be associated with well into the present day. But we definitely should get on with the Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, but before we do this week's phrase, we want to say a special thanks to two people who got in touch following last week's phrase. Yes, definitely. And last week's Swedish phrase, if you remember, translated into English as that's always something said the devil when he visited Ormol, with Ormol being a small town in Sweden. It's also the setting to the great movie that also recommended by director Lukas Moodison, which was released in Sweden with the title Effing Ormol. But then Kate got in touch on Facebook and told us that the same film has been released in English and to international audiences with a much less rude title called Show Me Love, which is actually also the name of the movie's title song. So like also, Kate is a huge fan of the movie and now we know what it's called in English, it might be easier for people to find it uh, and watch it themselves. So definitely do try and do that. And it's on my list for a cosy weekend at some point. So it really is a, a great film and Thank you, Kate, for getting in touch and telling us. I had no idea it was called uh, Show Me Love when it was released uh, internationally. And then a few days later, Virgil uh, wrote a message, also on Facebook, to say that he was driving through Elmol while he was listening to the episode. 
That's such a funny coincidence. Yeah, I mean, it really is just a random average Swedish town. And to be driving through it whilst listening to our episode is quite cool. <laughs> yeah, Virgil said that Omeol is a very pretty little town. And it's surrounded by beautiful countryside. And he wrote that he recommends that we go visit. So we wanted to share that with all of you listeners as well, this report straight from Elmol. So it's definitely on our list of places to visit now. So maybe just watch out for the devil when you go there so that he's not visiting at the same time. Yeah, so thank you to uh, Kate and Virgil for getting in touch. Uh, this is exactly the reason why we say to get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter and email because this kind of stuff is really great to hear. But yeah, so uh, we should probably move on to this week's phrase, I guess. Yes, we should. Uh, this week's phrase uh, actually has a bit of a historical link, so that makes it even better for a history podcast. The phrase is... Man vad man så kajsa vai. And in English, that means you take what you have, said Kaiser Wolf. Who was Kaiser Wolf? Was the, were they a wolf or a person? Or? <laughs> she was indeed a person. And the phrase is supposedly a quote from one of her books that's since become an established Swedish phrase in sort of everyday spoken language. Yeah, because Kaiser Wolf sounds like the name of a character in a children's cartoon or something. It's like, oh, look, it's Kaiser Wolf. She's come back from the forest and has eaten a rabbit or something. <gasps> I've never thought of it like that. But Kaiser Vai, or Vai, her last name, means wolf in Swedish. Uh, she was born in 1703, and she's often considered to have written the first cookbook in Sweden. Uh, whether that's the case or not, her book, which was called A Guide to Housekeeping for Young Women, and that was published in 1755, it became very popular. Just meatball recipes. <laughs> it's 500 pages of meatball recipes. I, I don't know, I've actually never read this cookbook. But supposedly in it, she wrote... You take what you have in reference to including an ingredient in a meal. And over the years, that phrase made its way from the cookbook into everyday use in the Swedish language. And now it just means you make do with what you have. So say, for example, I'm in the supermarket and I've forgotten to bring a bag for my groceries. So I just have to pack everything into my coat pocket. And then I can say, well, man, like I'm inventing a solution on the spot and I'm making do with what I got and putting everything in my pockets. That does sound good. But you also gave me a little teaser trailer and you said you know something fun about the phrase too. I do. And that is that Kaisavai never said it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In her book, it doesn't say, you take what you have. That's not in the book. What's in the book is, which sounds familiar, but it actually means, you take if you so have. So it would be like if she's making a cheese and onion sandwich, she says, if you've got cheese, you could have it, but it's not important to the recipe. So she was, exactly, so she was misinterpreted or, or an over, 
over the years, an incorrect version of the quote from her book has made its way into Swedish language and it's now used wrongly, which I think is very funny. Yeah, that is quite odd. But it's funny how the wrong version of something sometimes becomes more famous than the correct one. Um, but can you shorten this phrase like I want to do with Ingen Kupoisen? And can you just say Mantaga var Manhava? Do you have to always say at the end Kaiser Vai? You can just say Mantaga var Manhava. You don't always have to reference say, her. <laughs> reference her. But I think the phrase is funnier when you reference her, especially since it's incorrect. Yeah, so maybe you can say Mantaga var Manhava saw inter Kaiser Vai. Yeah. Did said Kaisavai not? That would be factually correct. I think you should try and introduce that phrase to the Swedish language instead. Yeah, I might say it at work, make people very confused. Um, but thank you, Kaisavai. Perhaps we'll come back to your cookbook when we get to the 18th century and do a, a live cooking episode. Oh man, this tastes disgusting. This 1750s version of meatballs is not very nice well um, save that idea for you know 500 episodes time yeah, special episode good. 48 cooking with kaiser we should probably get on with wrapping up the viking age yeah let's go back to the vikings in our first episode about vikings episodes 10 the vikings are here we talked about how we define both the viking period and the word viking here and in subsequent episodes, we clearly saw how important trade and travel was in the Viking period, that this was what got the Vikings, and indeed Sweden as a place, noticed in the rest of the world. It is in this period that we see people from this area emerging on the world stage and really becoming known by people outside of their own geographical area. And they wouldn't have been able to do any of this without any of their amazing boats. Um, remember when we talked about like the Bronze Age and the Iron Age about how the boats used to travel around and go and take the amber down south. But these boats have been massively improved on during the Viking times. And that was one of the major reasons for the Viking success going east and west. Yeah, it really is the Viking longboat that both in a physical and how important they were, takes the Vikings out into the world. Perhaps not right now during Corona, but if you want to see real-life Viking boats, there's the Viking Museum in Oslo that you can go and visit. Also in the Norwegian city of Tonsberg, they have a Viking festival every summer. And about 15 years ago when I was there, they didn't have the Viking festival then, but they are also home to reenactments and rebuilt modern day versions of Viking longboats. So I've seen a Viking longboat sailing down the Oslo Fjord wow. from Tonsberg. So perhaps in 2021, the festival will be back. And it's a whole three day living history festival where everybody dresses up as Vikings and they have dozens of these Viking longboats that sail around in the fjord and pretend to be Vikings again. So definitely head to southeastern Norway um, in the summer if you get a chance to see these Viking longboats sailing the sea again. That sounds extraordinary. We're talking about Viking longboats. We should not forget the Viking sails. Uh, it was really the sails that made these boats so extraordinary. I mean, you can't really go anywhere in a boat without a sail. Not anywhere far away. No. I mean, if you don't have a sail, you're just a bunch of morons in a floating tub. 
Although people, I think James Cracknell rode from England to America. So you can get there. It's just going to take you a lot longer. And it'll be a lot harder. So yeah. And if you're rowing to another country to attack them, you don't want to be super tired after rowing for eight days before you get there and try and take their stuff. As we saw in episodes about women as well, the sails were a huge part of the women's impact on day-to-day life because they were the people in Viking society who would have made the sails and repaired them and spent a lot of their time making sure that this was ready for all the people adventuring and sailing and trading around the world. Yeah, and they did get far thanks to their boats and thanks to their sails. Uh, Not just far in the sense of societal development with trading places like Birka that we talked about in episode 12, but also, like we said, literally far, as in far away from Sweden. Viking travels, both the violent kind, like raids and plundering, and the more peaceful one with trade, is perhaps most well-known in terms of what is known about the Vikings, at least in the English-speaking world. It's perhaps most known in terms of Vikings traveling west, in particular the Viking presence on the British Isles and in France and all the way across the Atlantic to Iceland and Greenland and eventually to the North American continent. Now, we've not talked that much about Viking travels to the West, simply because while the national boundaries were less distinct at the time, these travels were most likely done by Danes and Norwegians. The Swedish Vikings, on the other hand, concentrated their efforts east for natural reasons when you think about just the geographical location of them. When it comes to coastlines, which was, of course, where the Vikings lived and how they lived their lives, they traveled by water. So Sweden faces the east towards the Baltic Sea and the rivers down towards Russia and Ukraine and that area, whereas Norway and Denmark faces west towards the Atlantic. And it's really just a relatively short trip over to England and Scotland. Yeah. So might as well go there. It makes sense when you look at a map why the Vikings from the different areas of modern-day Scandinavia went in different directions. And for our Swedish Vikings, they certainly spent a lot of time focusing their efforts on the east, as we saw in episodes 13, 14 and 15, making it all the way as far as modern-day Ukraine and establishing ties with the Byzantine Empire and their rulers. In fact, with the Rus, we even saw how settling Swedish Vikings developed their own culture and society to the point where they created a whole new identity for themselves and we stopped talking about them because they weren't even really Swedish anymore and they had their own history separate from the Vikings back in Scandinavia. Yeah, so they did really get out and about the Vikings. In that very first episode, we also did some myth-busting. I don't know if you remember... Because the Viking period is something that's actually quite unusually for Swedish history. It's rather well known in the rest of the world. But that also means that there are quite a lot of misconceptions. So hopefully by now we have proven that not all Vikings were men. We've covered some very interesting facts about Viking women. Uh, We've also proven that they were not all violent even though some definitely were. But we've seen how much they engage in trade, 
but also that most of them lived a rather peaceful life as farmers and craftsmen in their local area. And definitely, when it comes to myth-busting, they did not wear horned helmets. But they definitely left cool stuff behind, and a lot of this still remains today, as we saw in the last episode when we visited the island of Liedinger with our microphones and saw the rune stones and burial sites and all this amazing stuff that's still right there today. Yeah, and that's just not even a tiny, tiny percentage of everything that you can see left from the Viking Age. There is so much and all around Scandinavia that you can physically explore what the Vikings left behind. Yeah, and that's not even counting the stuff that's left in museums and is still accessible in cultural sites today. And and a lot of those includes boats. And speaking of boats, I can't wait to go to the new Museum of the Viking Age in Oslo, which used to just be called the Viking Ship Museum. And when it opens up, it's going to be a really amazing new site to discover Viking history in Oslo and in Scandinavia. If you want a good Twitter account to follow, do find Dr. Kat Jarman on Twitter. She follows us and we have a few, uh, we retweet her a lot and she's got a new book coming out that's going to be really exciting. But yeah. she's also going to be the new senior advisor to the museum by the time it opens. And so she's having a lot of impact on how they're going to be telling the history of the Vikings in this amazing new museum to the Viking Age. And as I mentioned, yeah, we're really excited because she has a new book due out next year. So we've got to wait quite a while for it. But it's called River Kings. And so it's talking about uh, Vikings from Scandinavia to the east and lots of work on how the Swedish Vikings would have gone east, hence the name uh, going down for all the rivers in, in the east. So this is going to be really great to look forward to because, of course, we're always interested in new scholarship that's coming out. And so there's new stuff that we're learning every year. Definitely. Now, one thing that we haven't talked that much about and that will become relevant as we move into the next period of history was how society was structured in Sweden during the Viking Age. In episode 11, we talked about what daily life looked like for Swedish Vikings, and when our favourite guy Anskar came to Sweden in episode 12, we saw what towns and trading places like Birka would have looked like. But it's worth just briefly looking at what Viking society was like on a macro level. How did the Vikings in Sweden structure their lives and their coexistence what sort of laws did they have and so on. Uh, we haven't really mentioned rules and justice uh, that much so far. Yeah, out of all of the things that we've not talked about in a Swedish context, this is definitely something that we should talk about briefly before we move on to the next period in time. As we've mentioned countless times in this podcast so far, at this point, the southernmost part of Sweden, the county of Skåne, which sticks out right at the very bottom of the southwest of Sweden, is Danish, and some parts of the west coast, particularly the further north you go, was ruled by Norway. This is because Norway and Denmark were a little bit more further developed in a macro-societal level. They've had kings established as the dominant ruler of an exact period of land for quite a while at this point, at least with Denmark. And Sweden, as we know, have had sort of, oh, was this king a, a real king? Did he have control over all of what is now modern-day Sweden? Whereas Denmark and Norway have quite fixed borders that is really easy to see on the map. 
comparing that to Sweden, we're not even beginning to talk about the top 25% or 50% of the country, which was north of places like Birka, which was mainly home to people like the Sami, which we haven't talked about too much yet on this podcast. A lot of this reason is because a lot of this land isn't inhabited even by the Sami. It's completely uninhabited. But it isn't just the most northerly quarter of Sweden. It's also a lot of the inland area because it's not near the sea and these access to trade. These areas aren't even really inhabited too much during the Viking Age either. No, so when we talk about Sweden, we're really talking about populated areas along the Baltic Sea coast, we're talking about the area around Stockholm, south central area, the areas around the two great lakes, Vänern and Vettern, and then the two islands, Öland and Gotland, in the Baltic Sea. And it's not exactly crowded either. It's estimated that around the year 1000 AD, there were about 400,000 people living in Sweden. Now, that's roughly the size of the city of Coventry in the UK. Or Omaha in Nebraska, for those who prefer an American reference. Yeah, or the city of Jijing in the Heilongjiang province, for those who favor a Chinese reference. I don't think we have many Chinese listeners, but we do have a few. Yeah, and, and, uh, and maybe and a lot of people prefer a Chinese reference to an American reference. Absolutely. And it's also uh, one last one. It's four-fifths of the current population of Malta. So uh, <laughs> I, I think we should... A, yeah. I have a feeling we could go on forever with this. The point is that Sweden is only populated in scattered areas here and there. And even where there are people, there aren't that many. And because Sweden was relatively big, but still sparsely populated, it could be very far between settled areas, which resulted in that local traditions and dialects remained strong, because you just don't have that much contact with other areas. And you still see that today. Certainly in Norway and Sweden, you have communities that have effectively been self-sufficient for so long that their dialect is very far away from what is modern, correct Swedish or Norwegian. But going back to the Viking times, power was also scattered and more regional, especially in Sweden. As we've said, there's, there was no Swedish king as such, but lots of local chiefs and kings who might have had differing levels of power and alliances between each other. These local chiefs and minor kings would fight each other as well. Not always, as there would have been peaceful interactions and trade and alliances and marriages and so on. But it's important to remember because we think of Vikings going off and fighting in other places, but they also fought amongst each other too. And the next few episodes, there's going to be lots of kings and rulers fighting all over Scandinavia. Yeah, they didn't need to seek trouble across the sea. There was, there was plenty of trouble in their own backyards. Power was also, to a larger extent, based on personal relations. It was sort of, power was local and personal, uh, a kind of patron-client relationship, rather than a king-subject relationship in a larger context. Viking Age society was a hierarchical society and there was a great deal of social difference between the higher classes and the lower classes. Powerful chieftains ruled over people in their local areas where they built great halls and were leaders in many different ways in their society, be it in war or even occasionally in a religious sense. Yeah, so whilst the overall political structure was looser, 
the societal and political structure on the local level was stricter. Below the chieftains, there were independent farmers, uh, but they had less land than the chieftains and were dependent on them, hence this patron-client relationship. Uh, These independent farmers lived in a system of communal ownership, meaning that it wasn't an individual that owned a farm or a business, but rather a family. So if you wanted to sell your farm, for example, you had to make sure your whole family agreed to it. So this is a bit like what we were talking back in the Bronze Age and the Stone Age, where everybody owned everything, but more condensed in sort of a family sense rather than the whole village owning everything. And there's another category of people in Viking society that we've only really touched on previously, but haven't really clarified too much about them, and that was the Thralls. Indeed, and I think this is an important category to talk about because it shows how really not nice Viking society was. I mean, this fact that it was completely normal to own other people. Yeah, because that's essentially what a thrall was. A thrall isn't exactly synonymous with a slave, but it's pretty similar. It's similar to slavery in the sense that you were owned by another person and forced to do work for your owner. But unlike slavery, there were ways to enter into and leave thraldom, a bit like um, slavery in ancient Rome. You could sell yourself into slavery as a gladiator and then buy your freedom later. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, You might be born a thrall because uh, your parents were thralls and you were born and then you were sort of included in the ownership of your parents. But a person, like Chris was saying about ancient Rome, a person could also become a thrall later in life uh, through several events, actually. Uh, It could be a form of punishment or you were in debt and you couldn't pay, so you had to then go and become a thrall to pay that off or you had no other means of supporting yourself. And finally, which was quite common, uh, one way of becoming a thrall was uh, to be kidnapped by Vikings abroad. So taken as a form of prisoner of war and then brought to Sweden and forced to work for them. And I mean, that is awful. Really, really awful. There I am, minding my own business in, I don't know... Northern France. Yeah, and then one day some, you know, awful men from Sweden come and take me and I'm forced to go back. And I can tell you, it is November right now. It is cold here and very grey and dark. It's sunny today. It is sunny today, but I'm, I'm trying to paint this picture of how awful it is to be a thrall. And I'm, t- I'm taken from my home by these horrible Viking people. Not that an individual thrall would live for this long, but thralldom didn't actually disappear completely in Sweden until the mid-1300s, so it isn't exclusively a Viking concept, as sadly it has been throughout history. Another word that people might be familiar with when we talk about how Viking society was structured, and in particular if we talk about the legal system, is the word thing. Or ting. It's a ting thing. The ting is another example of this more localized power. A ting was an assembly that gathered maybe twice a year, it seemed, to meet and settle disputes and decide on common matters. 
Some have called the Tings the first parliaments, but I think that's taking it a few steps too far. Although in Norway, the Norwegian parliament is called the Storting, the Storting, which means the big thing. So (laughs) it actually is a parliament today, but not so much in the Viking times. No, because in the Viking times, we're only talking about free men. And the Ting was hosted and organized by the local chieftain. And all of that meant that it was far from equal and excluded large parts of uh, Viking Age society. As the Vikings had no written down legal texts to run their society from, they solved their disputes in legal manners by meeting together and deciding things together. There was a kind of law speaker or you know, speaker of the House of Commons that together with the men at the Ting would work with the chieftain to rule on these matters because he was presumably, and unfortunately it would have been a he, uh, he was presumably the wisest and perhaps had been around for so long and so people would trust his judgment. It seemed like a lot of these cases were often decided on a case-by-case manner rather than having a stipulated rule and precedence that said, if you do X, this will happen. Once the Ting had decided if there had been a wrongdoing, they also meted out punishment. And my world, the Viking Age punishment were tough. They certainly were. Much like a lot of ancient societies, they seemed fond of chopping off body parts, which is a nice, easy and uh, simple way of solving a problem, I guess. Other forms of punishment, like whipping, were also common. We should mention that whilst the Vikings were fond of harsh punishments, you know, cutting people's limbs off and hanging and drowning and whipping, there is also evidence of people getting off with a fine. For example, having to give some of their animals away for a crime that they committed. Yeah, it isn't just off with their head. And you can actually see this when looking back to the Byzantine emperors and the treaties that the Rus made with them. The Rus were saying things like, if you strike a man, you have to give him 50 times the value of the sword in silver and things like that. It wasn't just, yeah, chuck him in the lake. One final thing about the Viking period that we've, again, we've touched upon. Actually, we've literally touched it when we went outside in the last episode But we've not really talked about it, and that is runes. I think a lot of people associate the Viking Age with uh, runes, so it's worth just briefly clarifying what exactly that is. Runes, or runic script as it's also called, is quite simply an alphabet, just like the Latin alphabet with the ABC and so on that most of us are familiar with, or the Krillic alphabet, or other sets of symbols that together form the basis for a written language. Yeah, and the runic script is the oldest known written language in Sweden. It actually originated amongst the Germanic people on the European continent sometime around 200 CE or so. Um, Like a lot of these things, it's going to be absolutely impossible to pick an exact year or decade, but it spread to Sweden from then. Yeah, so the first people who could read and write in Sweden could read and write runes, not the Latin alphabet that we have today. The oldest rune alphabet has 24 characters. Whilst these runes share similarities with the Latin alphabet, the exact connection and relationship between the two is still debated today by scholars. At some point around the 6th and 7th centuries, 
something seemed to sort of happened with that ancient Norse language, which was what people spoke in Sweden at the time, and that resulted in a change in the runic script. Most importantly, it went from 24 to 16 characters. That's chopping off quite a lot of your characters. I don't need the A. Imagine we did that with our alphabet today. Like, we don't need A. We don't need K. I think it's more W. No, not W. V. We don't need V. Who uses V? In German, you use V quite a lot. I'm I'm not German. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Germany. We're removing the V. This reduction in characters seems to have happened pretty much everywhere, which has led historians to believe that rather than a gradual shift, this was a conscious decision to change the way they wrote perhaps instigated and spread around by all those lovely merchants that were traveling around a lot, which sounds really dramatic to mm-hmm. just decide to change your language like that, if that is what happened. Runes are perhaps most famous for being what was written on rune stones, like the two we visited in the previous episode. But runes weren't just carved on stone, they were used in all forms of writing. And runic script seems to have survived longer in Sweden than anywhere else. Uh, And it's also in Sweden that we find the most rune stones. Yeah, out of the roughly 6,000 known rune stones in Europe, half of them are in Sweden. And about a thousand of those are in the county of Uppland alone, which is the northern parts of Stockholm and the area around the city. So we're actually pretty close to around a thousand runestones so that's going to take a long time for us to visit them all yeah definitely two down 998 (laughs) runestones to go we'll keep posting them on social on social media as we go Uh, the writing on runestones is often a testimony to someone who's died as in the case of the first runestone we visited Or they speak of the building of a new bridge or another change in the transportation system. Or they're erected near the site of a ting. But mainly runestones are memorials and they were placed in spots where a lot of people would see them. Runestones continued to be erected after people and areas of Sweden had become Christian. In fact, many runestones have crosses on them and make references to God. Just like the second runestone we saw last week. And that's presumably because they were such a part of the culture that the religion itself wasn't too important an aspect of it, at least for those people who were becoming Christian. And the Swedes kept using their runes too, uh, as their preferred way of writing throughout the Viking period and into the medieval period. In fact, for a long time during the medieval period, Sweden actually had two writing systems, the runes and the Latin alphabet, that were used simultaneously. I don't know if there's a sort of Rosetta Stone of where, where someone's written down both examples of the no, same script at the same time. unfortunately not. And that's often mentioned as something that is why it's difficult to read runes today, is that unfortunately there is no Rosetta Stone or anything similar. It's annoying, but... Still, this shift away from runes and towards the Latin alphabet happened gradually, but it was mainly as a result of how religion, the Catholic Church and Christianity became more and more of a dominant force in society and how Sweden needed to adapt to those changes too. First, writing in Latin, which uh, yep, uh, became a thing, and then in Swedish. But that's something that's quite a long time in the future, an actual Swedish language being uh, recognised as a thing. But we'll definitely get to that in the podcast. 
Yeah, and getting to things. We've spent 10 episodes or so, maybe even more, talking about the Viking Age, and now we've talked about a few things that we felt we hadn't mentioned or perhaps hadn't clarified in previous episodes. But that doesn't mean that we've in any way said everything there is to say. There is obviously so much more to talk about when it comes to Vikings and the Viking Age and Sweden during the Viking Age. And if you're interested in the Viking Age and you like podcasts, we recommend again the History of Vikings podcast by Noah Tetzner, which is an interesting and in-depth look at everything related to the Vikings, including those conquests of Britain and heading towards Iceland and all of that sort of thing that we haven't covered ourselves. There's also lots of excellent interviews with historians and scholars on his podcast that we've even used uh, in the sort of background research to our podcast. So they're absolutely really well worth listening to. For sure. The same goes to Saga Thing, which we've already mentioned is another great podcast about the ancient Norse sagas. And if you're interested in the sagas as well as the more spiritual aspects of Viking life, like Norse mythology and Viking religion, then the Myths, Legends and Lore podcast is a great place to go to hear more of that too. Yeah, and there are obviously so many books and articles to read about the Viking Age. Just doing these episodes, I feel like we have to buy another bookshelf to fit what we've read. Two books in particular, though, have stood out for me when doing these episodes. And one is Dr. Johanna Friedrichsdottir's book, Valkyrie, The Women of the Viking World, that... We've mentioned uh, in our episodes about Viking women, it's an incredibly interesting and quite an easy read as well. Yeah, it's not using super, super academic language with a thousand million footnotes that you just think, oh, let me just finish this book. It's actually, yeah, it's really accessible and is a great way of talking about women in the Viking world. Yeah, then if you want an all-round book that covers pretty much everything about the Viking period. I'd recommend a book called The Viking World. It's edited by Peter Brink and there's different chapters by different historians and scholars and it's my favorite when it comes to a book that covers sort of broadly many topics uh, when it comes to the Viking period. Or you could just buy it as a really expensive doorstop because it's about the size of my head and is about 600 pages long. So it's a heavy, hefty book. <laughs> we almost had to order a separate container when we shipped it over from London to Sweden. Yeah, that is much more academic with footnotes and bibliography, which is longer than a lot of other books. So if you want to really, really get into the Viking world, then that's the book for you. But... We can probably now start to say goodbye to the Viking Age as a fixed sort of term of reference for our episodes going forward. Obviously, there's no hard and fast rule as to when one period ends and another begins. And certainly the next few episodes, could people would definitely say, is still set in the Viking Age in Sweden. We're still seeing Viking kings of Norway and Denmark interfering with Sweden. And these new Swedish kings we're going to be talking about in the next few episodes could definitely be called Viking kings and queens. But we're now at the point where we can start looking at the history properly on a sort of year-by-year basis almost. So... 
Yeah, I mean, these periods in history that we refer to today, they were invented much later. It's not like people woke up in Sweden one day and said, okay, we're not Vikings anymore, now we're into medieval times. Yeah, I think with the Vikings, it's maybe a tiny, tiny bit easier because um, Harald Hardrada, the king of Norway and previous member of the Varangian Guard down in Constantinople, well, he's sort of seen as the last truly 100% Viking king who went off raiding and killing and claiming land. And he was killed in 1066 in the Battle of Stamford Bridge in England. So I think he's used to end the Viking Age. But of course, he was only in Norway. He wasn't anything to do with Sweden or Denmark. So the Viking Ages in general can be... is very fluid. Yeah. And the shift is gradual and it's due to many things happening. For one, Christianity gets a stronger foothold in Sweden and that changes Swedish society by introducing laws and introducing a societal structure that's brought about by the church. So a couple of hundred years later, Ansgar will be looking down from his uh, saintly heaven, uh, smiling that Sweden is slowly becoming Christian. Got there eventually. Christianity also ties Sweden closer to a sort of pan-European society, uh, because now Sweden has something in common with the rest of Christian Europe and the governance that came from the Pope in Rome. So uh, we're part of a club, so to say, now. Centuries before we joined the EU, uh, we're now part of a different kind of uh, European community. Yes, but in terms of our timeline, we're not actually there yet. Uh, At the end of the Viking Age, this isn't when Sweden becomes uh, Christianized, so it's something that we're going to cover in the next dozen episodes or so, probably, because it's such a long and complicated story. But we've now seen about how, in general, Sweden has become a place where the population was very splintered and the land was very well located for travel to the east and engaging in the trade that was coming over from the east towards the west. And that's one of the reasons why the area where we are today, around Lake Melloran, where Birka is, became so wealthy. Towards the end of the Viking period, in fact, from the late 900s onwards, we see this trade diminishing, and especially how in certain goods and certain valuable objects like silver from the east, which was coming all the way from the caliphate in Arabia, was starting to dry up. And this led to a loss in power for some of the Swedish elites and the local chiefs, and internal competition grew. And this set the stage for some of the dramatic events that we're going to be talking about next week and beyond. Yeah, we will see how these local chiefs lose power and power starts to become consolidated in one king. Uh, The ruling class also became much more dependent on land ownership and less on these personal ties that had governed power structures in the Viking period. This is quite a significant shift in Swedish society and will lead to the emergence of the person that we'll talk about a lot in the next episode, who some people call the first proper Swedish king, Erik Segersel. We'll meet Erik and uh, talk more about these societal changes and the gradual emergence of a Swedish state in our next episode. But for now, it's probably goodbye to the Vikings. Yeah, it's goodbye Vikings. Uh, We're moving along. What will you take with you from the time we've spent looking at the Viking Age? 
I don't know. I think a lot of this stuff is busting the myths, talking about all these amazing women and looking at the Rus. I sort of I knew the Rus were a thing and that they were Vikings who moved east, but I didn't really appreciate how much of the Swedes were involved and how much of a big deal they were when they went to Constantinople and met the Byzantine emperor and things like that. And Ansgar is definitely the coolest thing that I've learned about so far. I didn't even know he was a thing or what anything vaguely to do with Ansgar. Yeah, so you did become quite, uh, I wouldn't say obsessed, but very, very interested in Ansgar. Yeah, that was the most fun episode to both read and write and record. No one's gotten in touch with me, by the way, saying that they remember having been to that school play where they sang a song about Ansgar, so I'm becoming more and more convinced that maybe I just made that up in my own head. Definitely possible. What would you say was your favourite bit or the thing you learned the most? Yeah, I think the thing that stuck with me is how much is still physically with us today. Uh, going to visit those three sites uh, where we recorded uh, the last episode, it really stayed with me that there were people who had lived literally where I live today and lived out their lives here and we've walked the same ground. Whilst the Viking Age feels very, very far away, especially when you look at things that like, you know, they've chopped people's arms off if they'd committed a crime sometime or you know they sailed in these viking longboats and a lot of it seems very removed from our lives today but then you think they lived out those lives exactly where i live out my life and that's uh, a fascinating connection through the centuries and that will only continue to grow the closer we get to the modern day. Yeah, for sure. There'll be more and more of that tangible presence of, of history. Uh, we've got a lot to cover in the next few episodes. There are a lot of exciting events ahead of us. Chris has already mentioned Erik Segosel and how we're going to start to see Sweden properly forming as a nation, catching up with what's already been happening in Denmark and Norway. But before we end, we've had two new lovely reviews. Chris, will you read them out? Yeah, so from America, we have a five-star review, which is called Great Podcast by Honor Claire. And he says, this podcast is full of interesting facts and historical accounts of Sweden. I love listening. Going all the way back to August, I'm sorry we didn't spot this review earlier, um, but we were busy moving, so I'm sure you can forgive us. That's by Nantahan, Nantanhan uh, from the UK. It's a lovely username. Thank you, smiley face, five stars. Uh, I'm very interested in Sweden and Swedish history. Great podcast. And then Taxamika, which is thank you very much in Swedish. And another smiley face. Well, so Taxamika to you too. Yeah. Of course, if you want to hear your review being read out on the podcast, all you have to do is go and leave one for us and we'll find it at some point. I think we're now up to date, but if we have missed you, um, it's really quite awkward. You have to go into each individual country to see if you've got a review from there. So if you're from Chile, I don't think I've checked the Chile review page yet. So do send us a message or an email to let us know if you have left a review and we'll read it out for you. Yeah, definitely, because reviews do mean a lot to us, not just because it makes me and Chris feel all nice and happy inside, 
But because thanks to the reviews, uh, we become more noticeable on the different podcast platforms. Uh, it's just how they work. So it's uh, a way to make even more people aware of uh, a flat pack history of Sweden. Yep. Uh, and also tell your friends. Um, I've listened to uh, almost all of the great podcasts I've listened to at some point in time have been recommended to me via a friend. So that's always a nice old school, very pre-internet way of recommending us to someone. And it would be nice if one of you sent a letter to a friend to recommend a podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for the reviews and for getting in touch. Don't forget to keep following us on social media and leave those reviews on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Yep, and we've had loads of people liking our photos that we've been putting up recently about our various trips, uh, both for the podcast and not for the podcast. So if you want to see some pictures of Sweden, do check out our social media stuff. But for now, it's probably time to say goodbye. Bye-bye. Hey, door. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of A Flat Pack History of Sweden, wrapping up the Iron Age as we approach the end of this long period we've been looking into recently. You said Iron Age. Oh. Oops. That would be very 1880s of you. Hello, Hermione. I was just writing a letter because I've listened to this new podcast cast it's a little bit like listening to a show on the wireless and uh, if you were bored of listening to mr chamberlain talking about his relationship with herr hitler please do listen to a flat pack history of sweden one of those countries in the north of scandinavia that is very not worth paying attention to but they do have great history so i enclose a link to an app called Pod bean. It's, with it's this such letter. a bad idea to send a link in a letter. No. So What's the point of sending a link on a piece of paper? Well, that's not very nice, is it? This is Archibald signing off from my letter from Sweden, where I live now. Oh, goodbye. Yeah, okay. I feel like we're drifting. This is all going at the end of the episode. <laughs> we're drifting very much uh, away from the topic. Right. So I'm just going to compose Goodbye. myself.